0: Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts, the fifth chapter, beginning in verse 12, reading through verse 21. Hear now God's Word. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, And they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. And thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. One of the big questions that must be answered as we look at the early church, as we've been looking, working our way through the book of Acts, is it concerns the rapid growth of the Christian faith. How did that happen? A lot has happened in the very short time as we've begun to read this book from the time Jesus uh, meets with his disciples after the resurrection in Acts chapter one and he commissions them and tells them that they're going to be witnesses to the whole world starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth and then sure enough the Holy Spirit falls upon them after the ascension and they began to speak, people hear the gospel in their own languages, and the international spread of the gospel begins. And here we are just a few weeks later as we are in chapter 5. We don't know the exact period of time, but it's a very short period of time. And there, this has been a roller coaster of highs and lows and highs again. In fact, uh, Western civilization will be powerfully impacted by the rise of Christianity. And, of course, the world continues to feel the powerful effects of the gospel of Christ. And I'd like to point out that if this can happen then, it can certainly continue to happen now. As we consider the unfolding story of the early church, there are lessons for us as the heirs of these very Christians. They could not have imagined, they could not have imagined the impact they were going to have on the world. And I would suggest that perhaps we have not yet imagined the impact we could have on the world too if we would do as they do here, if we would go and speak the words of this life. In the the story recorded in Acts, the reigning authorities are already reacting. They're already trying to shut this operation down. They're trying to shut the church down. Uh, they, the, The authorities and the institutions have come and gone throughout history, but they have never let up in their opposition to Christ. We looked at earlier, because Peter alludes to it, but Psalm 2 is very clear. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So basically the leaders of the world, the rulers of the world, by and large, don't like God telling them what to do. They don't like having any kind of restraint whatsoever. They don't like being accountable. They want to get rid of that. They want to be the final word. The good news is that while they have not let up in their opposition to God, Christ has never let up in his opposition to them. So let's pick up our story where we left it. Peter and the other apostles were continuing to meet in Solomon's porch. And if you want to look at the little piece I put in the order of worship, a little drawing of the temple grounds there, I thought it would be helpful to have a visual there. This is a part of the large temple complex covering the the temple complex covers an area of about 37 acres. That's what you see pictured there. And you see that large courtyard. uh, I believe that is on the left side there. And and you'll see where it mentions Solomon's porch up there at the top. All around the perimeter there, those are columns. Uh, so that's a covered walkway where the, co- where the columns are, and then out in the center area is just an open area. And then, of course, the temple there is in the middle. So they're meeting in that large area on the left side of the drawing in Sol- what's called Solomon's Porch. Crowds of people were gathering around the apostles. This was the place, you'll recall where the lame man had been healed just a few weeks earlier, the man who had been lame from birth. And that was the initial stir. Uh, They were coming, like they had for Jesus, to receive both healing and instruction. So it was not just the healings. There was preaching. There was teaching going on. And I think it would be fair to assume that the teaching continued to be like what we have already seen from Peter, which included tying together... Uh, Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, uh, and tying them, of course, to the powerful news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King. Providentially, this is where God has these events unfolding in a very public place, in plain sight of all those in authority. And while I don't necessarily think the disciples were being intentionally provocative Nevertheless, this was really an in-your-face situation. These were not the catacombs. It was only a few weeks ago, though, that these very men were hiding because they were afraid of what the authorities might do to them. As a result, we might say that the authorities were triggered. Their safe space had been invaded. So the apostles were about to be uninvited and asked to leave the campus. Many signs and wonders were done among the people which validated the message of the apostles. Now I'm speculating a bit, but it seems to me that a new group of people emerge in this unfolding story. It's a group that on the one hand is awestruck by what they're seeing and hearing and on the other hand they're afraid we can understand why they're afraid many of them had witnessed and at least or at least knew about the crucifixion of jesus just a few weeks or months prior to this so they're impressed with what they're seeing and hearing and they're even sympathetic and they have a respect for the believers they have a respect for the apostles who are speaking and I think they're actually like a lot of Christians today, afraid of what was starting to happen as the authorities began to respond, afraid to speak up and to be associated perhaps with those who are outspoken. Remember, many of these people, again, had, had witnessed or, or heard of the persecution against Jesus and, and other Christians already. So the text says that the rest dared not join them but the people esteem them highly. Kind of like Agrippa will later say to Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. So I'm not sure if these are believers who are holding back or unbelievers who are almost persuaded. Uh, So it could be a mixture of both. Some people who are kind of on the edge. Nevertheless, and this is a big part of the answer to my opening question regarding the growth of the Christian faith... The text also tells us that in the midst of this, many, uh, that believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. We already know that there were 3,000 the first day. There were several thousand more after Peter preached again. And now multitudes are being added daily. So let's zoom in a little closer on the scene. So this large crowd is assembling daily. They brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Now, every now and then I need to throw in something for the old folks, but this I don't know why this situation reminded me of that old chiffon margarine commercial, It's Not Nice to Fool Mother Nature. Uh, You remember that? You, You think it's butter, but it's not. Well, the Sanhedrin was kind of like Mother Nature here. Uh, they didn't like the apostles coming along and doing uh, things and teaching things and getting the attention of people, uh, bringing the, the message of salvation. That was their job. And they didn't like these, new, these newbies, these new arrivals coming along and challenging what they were in charge of. Um, so N.T. Wright comments on this. He says, consider the reaction of the mainstream medical profession to the rise in our day of alternative therapies, and imagine how a great modern hospital would react if a clinic offering quite a quite different style of treatment opened up right outside their front door. And so that's what we have here in Solomon's porch. Right outside the door of the temple, We have people being healed left and right, and we have the message of the resurrection of Jesus, which, by the way, also included uh, the apostles regularly pointing out who killed him. So the authority of the Sanhedrin was now being challenged by these untrained amateurs, uh, the apostles of Jesus, and they were suddenly, that is the Sanhedrin, was suddenly faced with crowds which in and of just the fact that it was a crowd was a threat to them. This was not an organized, top-down event. I hear a lot of questions these days regarding, well, what should we do about all that's going on in our culture? But there is no single voice to lead us directly. Nevertheless, I'd like to remind you that when the Spirit of God moves, and I think the Spirit of God is always moving, then He can orchestrate a movement Of his people. He often does it in many places at the same time. Persecution ensued as the Sanhedrin attempted to shut down the apostles and to salvage their evaporating authority. Again, what started with the healing of one crippled man in the temple had now rapidly grown to include large crowds of people. So a multitude gathered from surrounding cities to Jerusalem bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were all healed. Now I want to take a sidebar here in the sermon just to discuss a little something. We we touched on this earlier but I want to say something else about healing. A few other observations about healing in the Bible. Number one, there is no formula. God is sovereign and he can heal or not heal when, where, and how he wants to. Jesus varied his method of healing, right? He spoke, he touched, he spat, he spat twice, he healed from a distance, he even healed when someone touched the hem of his garment. Now we have Peter walking by, and his shadow is falling on people, and they're being healed. That's pretty impressive. In Acts 19, 11 and 12, we read that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then, so you got all this going on, and then suddenly in Acts 12, 2, we have the story of James being killed and Peter escaping. The point is that God can do whatever He wants, and He often does more than we can imagine. On the other hand, people still get sick and die, all of them, including all the ones who were ever healed. Paul's thorn in the flesh was not taken away. And he prescribed to Timothy, what? For your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities, drink some wine. And we read that Epaphroditus was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, Paul said, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So my point is for us to remember, God is powerful. God heals. God can do what He wants, when He wants, how He wants. But we can't manipulate God in this. This is God's work. Now back to our story. So the complaint against the Christians will ultimately be, and continues to be, that these have turned the world upside down. They're messing with the system. And that's a problem. It's always a problem. Challenging the current authorities. This is an important point with strong implications for our current situation. The public, I believe, right now has lost confidence in the existing authorities, just as many of us, they had, just as many of us have lost confidence. Confidence in the existing authorities of our own day. I don't know about you. I don't know who to believe anymore. I believe the Bible. But I don't believe almost anything else I hear anymore. Which public authority do you have confidence in? Now, if this situation in the first century had remained only a handful of folks, a small number of followers of Jesus, then they could have simply, simply written them off as some kooks. They could have been ignored. But something grand, something new, something powerful has begun. The message of Jesus demands a response and they were now invading occupied territory and the current occupants of that territory were not going to go easily. So the next wave of persecution is going to come. When, you, when people feel they're losing the grip and losing the control, they start grasping. They start reaching further, trying to get this back into the box. And so it began in chapter 4 when Peter and John spent a night in prison under arrest by the Sanhedrin. And as they were being released, they were commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We're going to let you go. But you better not go out of here and, and start talking again about Jesus. Censorship is where it starts. You shut up or we will shut you down. Only approved speech is allowed. The response of Peter and John was resolute. It was bold. It was clear. And I quote, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. In other words, they said, There is no way we're going to shut up. So we know it isn't over. This time the Bible reveals that the motiva- reveals the motivation of the Sadducees. They were filled with indignation. This word can also be translated jealousy. Again, ineffective opposition had the apostles been ineffective had the christians been ineffective then that's really no opposition at all right luke's description however portrays a situation where there were so many people that the authorities were worried and they couldn't ignore it in fact they had to be careful about how they arrested the apostles because they were afraid some kind of a riot would break out This was getting out of control, and it wasn't just the miraculous healings, but the message that was attached to those healings. And so they are described as signs and wonders, which points to the very specific functioning or function of demonstrating. In other words, why are we having all these miracles? They were there to demonstrate the veracity of the apostles' testimony about Jesus himself. Moreover, they pointed beyond the immediate and present to the future. They showed the kind of transformation that the gospel brings. It is God's redemptive purpose to restore all things, to rid the fallen world of the effects of sin which began in the garden. The new world would be the place where Satan was cast out. As John will describe it later in the book of Revelation, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And what's begun here in Solomon's porch was just the first shot over the bow. Of course, in this world, no good deed goes unpunished. How could you oppose this? But for every act of supernatural power for good, there seems to be an equal and opposite reaction of supernatural evil. So the indignant and jealous high priest and his party, the Sadducees, arrested all the apostles and put them in the public prison. Spurgeon commented on this. He said that the second persecution, the first one, remember, was when Peter and John were arrested and then released, told not to speak anymore. He says the second persecution of the church in which all the apostles were put into the common prison was mainly brought about by the sect of the Sadducees. These, as you know, were the broad school the liberals, the advanced thinkers, the modern thought people of the day. If you want a bitter sneer, a biting sarcasm, or a cruel action, I commend you to these large-minded gentlemen. They are liberal to everybody except to those who hold the truth of God, and for those they have a reserve of concentrated bitterness which far exceeds wormwood and gall. Nevertheless, these guys were up against forces. That is, the Sanhedrin was up against forces they couldn't see and that were much stronger than they were. In fact, as the devil often does, he overplayed his hand. He was trying to silence the church through intimidation and persecution, but their actions in this persecution would have the exact opposite effect. chapter 5 verse 19 and 20 but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life do what the angel was not just springing them from prison he was summoning them right back to to the very front lines of the fight The very thing that got them put into prison in the first place is the thing that God wants them to go back to the temple and do again. This establishes the biblical principle that there are limits to civil obedience. Now let me note that I am not with those who start with the assumption that if the government is for it, I'm against it. I am not of that school of thought. I don't think the Bible is either. God ordained the civil authority for our good, and he calls us to submit to it. He says in Romans, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers. Third time we've been told they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So when government is doing what God has called it to do, we are to give thanks for it. We are to submit to it. Are they sometimes, perhaps often, incompetent, inefficient? Yes, but so am I, and so are you so is your family, and so is the church. We're in a fallen world. We know that. Nevertheless, there are times when Christians cannot and must not obey the state. When the authorities require you to disobey the law of God, then the line must be drawn, and it cannot be crossed. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom first. There are some good examples of this in Scripture. The Hebrew midwives in Moses' day refused Pharaoh's law to destroy the Hebrew male children. And what was the primary reason for their civil disobedience? Exodus one seventeen tells us plainly, The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. King Darius ordered that no prayer be offered to anyone but the king. And how did Daniel respond to that? Daniel 6.10, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, the law was signed, you got it? He went home. And in his upper room, with his window open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. This got him a trip to the lion's den. And do you recall the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? When ordered to worship the golden image, knowing that the penalty for disobedience was to be tossed into the fiery furnace, Daniel 3, 16-18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. And Queen Esther disobeyed in a variety of ways, including her illegal approach to King Hazarus when she intervened to save the life of the Jews. This is not a license for us to resist every law that we don't like. Nevertheless, the Scriptures forbid us to carry out what God forbids or to not do what God commands. And when that time comes, and it is coming, then we should be resolved to stand boldly and to speak loudly. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us as well. Why were the apostles to risk so much? Because these are the very words of life. This is a life or death matter. They were to go immediately, this was urgent. John Calvin commented the apostles might have objected it's better to keep silence for a time for as much as we cannot speak one word without danger we are now apprehended for only one sermon how much more shall the fury of our enemies be inflamed hereafter if they shall see us make no end of speaking but because they know that we uh, that they were to but because they knew that they were to live and die to the lord They do not refuse to do that which the Lord commanded. So we too must always mark what function the Lord enjoins on us. There will be many things that meet us which may discourage us. Unless being content with the commandment of God alone, we do our duty committing the success to Him. And so as we read this text... There are many things that I'd like to know about that angel. How did he get in the prison? How did he spring the apostles? What did he look like? The Bible doesn't tell me that. It just says the angel showed up and let him out. Oh, and he had something to say. The Bible tells me what I need to know. What it does tell me is, quote, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. Spurgeon commented on this text. He said, Brethren, it is not ours to hide in holes and in corners. Our gospel is like the sun whose line is gone out through the earth. Let us not speak timidly, for we have not received the spirit of fear. Neither will we hide our candle under a bushel. We are to publish the tidings of that life from the dead, which has brought life for the dead. This, then, is a message for all the people. Rich or poor, from every tribe or tongue, their world and our world was and is very hungry, but they perish for a lack of knowledge. We tend to sit around and analyze and complain and worry and fret about the corruption and condition of our world and of our culture. But I ask you, have you boldly spoken the words of this life? The gospel is simple and it's always appropriate for saving. Jesus said in Matthew nine it says then Jesus went out all the city into went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people but when he saw the multitudes he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd then he said to his disciples the harvest truly is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore pray the lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest the christian message is like christ it is he is the way the truth and the life and we like our forebearers have to preach the words of life this life the first word of this life is Jesus Christ. In the 42nd verse of Acts 5, we read, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Jesus has the words of eternal life. We preach Christ and Him crucified, and if we didn't, then we would not be speaking the words of this life. There is no preaching the words of this life except that we preach the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. The apostles boldly spoke of our Lord's death, for they said to the council whom you killed and hung on a tree, leave out the sacrificial, the the satisfaction made by Christ for sin. Leave out the doctrine of a real and effective substitutionary atonement, and you have left out the gospel." And then, of course, they must speak about the resurrection. Him has God raised from the dead. The next great truth of God mentioned by Peter is the cause of this life. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. That's followed by his ascension to glory. Him, God has exalted to his right hand. These are historical facts which are found in the words of this life. And so we must keep on hammering away at this. Jesus died, rose again, and rose to heaven to make intercession for us. And because of all of this, there is life for the sons of men. There is no teaching all the words of this life unless these great facts Are boldly declared. There are no locked doors. In the kingdom of God. There is no authority. Above the authority of Christ. There is no power. That he cannot overthrow. And there is no culture. That he cannot transform. And there is no enemy. Including death. That he cannot conquer when he says let there be light there was light and when he says let there be life there is life let's pray father we stand amazed in your presence as we consider the works of your hands your wisdom power holiness goodness and truth as creatures we are amazed but as your children we are grateful We rejoice to see how you have worked to bring to pass your perfect will and how you have overcome all evil plans and made your enemies your footstool. Help us to face the challenges of our own day with faith and courage, the faith and courage of the apostles and the first Christians, so that we too might speak to the people all the words of this life and that we might also see multitudes added to your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, the table is for all those who have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and are members in good standing in Christ church. And we invite you to the table to eat and, and partake of this meal. As I was studying, I ran across uh, a statement by Charles Spurgeon that I thought would be helpful to think about before we come to the table. So I just want to read it, and it's a, it's a good uh, thought coming off of the sermon. Um, Paul says that in comparison with his great object of preaching the gospel, he did not count even his life to be dear to himself. Yet we are sure Paul highly valued life. He had the same love of life as other men, and he knew besides that his own life was of great consequence to the churches and to the cause of Christ. And in another place, he said, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He was not weary of life, nor was he a vain person who could treat life as though it were a thing to fling away in sport. He valued life, for he prized time which is the stuff that life is made of, and he turned to practical account each day and hour, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Yet he soberly said to the elders of the church at Ephesus that he did not regard his life as a dear thing in comparison with bearing testimony to the gospel of the grace of God. The apostle regarded life as a race which he had had to run. Now, the more quickly a race is run, the better. Certainly, length is not the object of desire. The one thought of a runner is how he can most speedily reach the winning post. He spurns the ground beneath him. He cares not for the course he traverses, except so far as it is the way over which he must run to reach his desired end. Such was life to Paul. All the energies of his spirit were consecrated, "...to the pursuit of one object, namely, that he might everywhere bear testimony to the gospel of the grace of God, and the life which he had lived here below was only valued by him as a means to that end." He also regarded the gospel and his ministry and witnessing to it as a sacred deposit, which had been committed to him by the Lord himself. He looked upon himself as put in trust with the gospel... And he resolved to be faithful, though it should cost him his life. He said, he says he, quote, desired to fulfill the ministry which he had received of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before his mind's eye, he saw the Savior taking into his pierced hands the priceless box, which contains the celestial jewel of the grace of God, and saying to him, I have redeemed you with my blood, I have called you by my name, and now I commit this precious thing into your hands that you may take care of it and guard it even with your heart's blood. I commission you to go everywhere in my place instead and to make known to every people under heaven the gospel of the grace of God. All believers occupy a somewhat similar place. We are none of us called to the apostleship, and we may not all have been called to the public preaching of the word of God, but we are all charged to be valiant for the truth upon the earth and to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. Oh, to do this in the spirit of the apostle of the Gentiles. As believers, we are called to some form of ministry, and this ought to make our life a race and cause us to regard ourselves as the guardians of the gospel, even as he that bears the colors of a regiment regards himself as bound to sacrifice everything for their preservation. Oh, how I love your law! It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers'. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. O Lord, bless now our resting and our feasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.